pull this back a wee bit because I'll probably fall off the stage. That's just how clumsy I am. I also feel that you should know this morning that my four-year-old offered to do my hair. Uh, <laughs> last night when I was putting her to bed, she said, Mommy, what about a side ponytail? And I said, well, let's, let's just see, Sarah. Thankfully, it never came up. <laughs> so that's a good start to the day. But um, many of you know that, that from last January to June, we had looked and explored the whole series of um, the Spirit Breaking Out. And we paused it at the end of June, and we've picked it back up again now to, see, to look and explore the origins of the early church. And so over the last few weeks, we were reminded of the fact that the Holy Spirit birthed the church, that the church is a movement of the Spirit, that the power of the church is love, that the church is for all flesh, and that the church had to keep moving forward in order to break down religious and cultural borders that have been intentionally created to separate us. And then Chris last week really powerfully shared with us Am I doing something wrong that it was on one screen and not the other? Yeah, okay. I'll just block that out. Okay. Chris powerfully shared with us last week that the Holy Spirit is central and, in fact, fundamental to the growth of the church, that the Spirit looks at people and sees everyone, each one of us, as this ongoing process, this work of restoration back to original glory because we're all made in the image of God. And that God, the Holy Spirit, is the chief architect of the church, and it's our job to keep in step with him as he builds the church in the way that he wants, and that we as a church owe the world then an encounter with the living God so that the kingdom can be built. That's the summary of the last couple of weeks, and these are kind of the basic fundamental things that the church are built upon. So, as the church, as the body of Christ, one of our responsibilities is to ask ourselves a few questions. Now, there's going to be a lot of questions this morning. They're all rhetorical. Please don't anybody feel that you have to shout back at me again. If you want to, fire on. But um, the first question that I wanted us to think about this morning is, well, what is the church meant to look like? And are we, as a body of believers, like that? Now, Martin Bashir is the religious editor of BBC, and he said, he reported recently, that the latest British social attitude surveys says that more than half, 53% of the British public now describe themselves as having no religion at all. So when you think in Britain that there's Muslims, there are Hindus, there are Sikhs, Jews, and the list goes on, and Christianity in the middle of all of that, more than half of the British public don't accredit their lives to any kind of religion at all, that's kind of scary. What that means is that people have no hope. People don't realize that God is on their side. And it's our job as the church to respond to that. But unfortunately, for many nowadays, people just kind of see the church as like an outdated institution that is irrelevant, that's on the edge, that watches with no real helpful input into the current events that are happening all around us in the world, that quite often the church ends up playing defense rather than being cutting edge with God-inspired, redemptive and social strategies. And so here's what the BBC GCSE RE, I feel like I'm saying the alphabet, the BBC GCSE RE syllabus says, revision guides, right? This is what our kids are being educated with if they do GCSE RE. They say that Christians are the church believe that it is a part of their duty to act in a moral way, 
And this involves helping others around them, that the church can play a vital role in Christians helping others with, as they provide food banks. I love food banks. I think food banks are a, a kingdom inspiration, but that's not all I'm living for. <laughs> it's not. And while it's a tiny slither of the heart of the church, we have to ask ourselves, right, if this is how the world sees church, is it enough? Is this all the church is about? This is not all I'm living for, and I hope that it's not all you're living for either. But we are about so much more than fulfilling a moral duty. Like, definitely. I could, I could just be moral without coming to church every Sunday morning. So are we satisfied as a church, as Chris said, that we're giving the world an encounter with the living God? Are we making an impact in the way that Jesus intended? And I'm not posing these questions this morning to kind of lay on a guilt trip. But we're all kind of grown-ups now, mostly. And when you grow up, you kind of realize that sometimes you have to ask yourselves hard questions and you have to own the answers in order to make change in your life. We'll only grow when that happens. So hopefully this morning you'll see that if we strip it right back to the New Testament model, we'll see what the Holy Spirit reveals through Paul in the New Testament. So it's my aim, hopefully with the help of the Spirit this morning, to bring a wider and a deeper understanding for Christ's vision for the church. I should, I, I said this to Chris this morning, I can't, when I was preparing this, I kind of felt like I was like really pushing through, like I was like um, in labor, if that's the way to put it. I felt like I was really birthing something. This has been a really hard one to pull together. So from that, I kind of feel like there might be something significant this morning. So stay with me if you can. Um, to place this all in context, and hopefully this will help. We're going to go through a really brief historical context of the Book of Acts and, and what we sort of looked at from last January to June. So the church as we see it now didn't actually exist. In its basic form, people had literally just been following Jesus around. Historically, the Jewish people were those that God had set his inheritance upon. Those were the ones singled out. This underdog nation were singled out to have the favor of God on their lives so that God could show the, the world how he, what his character was and how he loved them. So Jesus then, when he resurrected again, he ascended and the Holy Spirit came. And then the church was established in the beginning of the book of Acts. Mostly at that point, among the Jewish people, there was the odd Gentile. So that's a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. There was the odd Gentile, but mostly it was among the Jewish people at this point in the early stage of the book of Acts. And geographically, even at this point, it was mostly contained to Jerusalem. And Luke really is, is on the ball. He's very genius in the way that he does this. He lays it out really clearly and really plainly the ways in which the church was built upon, if you can remember this term, the Didache, the teaching that Jesus gave to the apostles that they could build the church on. So Luke makes that really, really plain. But then we know that persecution broke out. And this caused the church to spread out into Judea, into Samaria, and into the ends of the earth, which was the unfolding of Jesus' last command to the disciples, which we call the Great Commission. This was when it exploded among the Gentiles, particularly because the apostles were those who were scattered. And during this time, Paul witnessed firsthand what God was up to because he was living like right slap bang in the middle of the whole thing. 
his spiritual eyes were opened to everything that the Holy Spirit was up to. He was building, putting in place, and strategizing. And Paul kind of just gets this light bulb moment where he gets this revelation. He's like, wow. I imagine he said something like, <laughs> he, he, he just got this revelation. He's like, oh God, this is it. This is what you've been doing. This is the manifold wisdom. This is how you reveal yourself to humanity. What a divinely inspired thing this is. So in Ephesians 3, from verse 2 on, it says, Surely you have heard about the administration, that's just the plan, of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, his light bulb moment, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so this morning, if we believe that God's word is infallible and it's what we base our lives around, then we must also recognize that Paul's teaching in the New Testament is how we currently should develop the church with the help of the Spirit. And so based on that, we as leadership believe that it's really crucial to look back at the original recipe and unpack it and see what that means for us. Is there anything we need to realign? Is there anything that we need to do that we're not yet doing? So another question that we have to answer this morning is a pretty basic one. Who then or what is the church? So Paul uses this word ecclesia for the church. Now, ecclesia is designed or defined in the dictionary as a political assembly of citizens in the definition of ancient Greece. So to the Greeks, it was a political assembly of people. And since then, it also has this meaning now, church members. Technically, what it really means is like called out ones. But in its original usage in the Greek, the ecclesia, it was not just an assembly or a gathering of people. If that's all that Paul wanted to say, he could have used lots of other Hebrew words and the people that he was writing to would have known what he meant. He could have used words like synagogue or synagogue, which just meant an assembly or a group of people. But the word ecclesia had this distinctly political feel to it. It wasn't a religious term at all at this point when Paul used it. And um, in his time, an ecclesia was a gathering of elders in the community. And so these smaller villages and towns all across the Roman Empire, they would have local elders who would gather together to discuss and deliberate over a variety of social and political dilemmas facing the community. That's how Paul wants us as a church to respond. So in other words, an ecclesia was, you're going to feel good leaving church here this morning, hopefully. If you're the ecclesia, you're the body of Christ. The ecclesia is a gathering of wise community leaders brought together by their common vision for the harmony and the well-being of the wider community. Ecclesia in this sense is really this community that exists within a community whose very purpose was to add value to the community that they find themselves in. It was meant to bring wisdom to it. It helped it be a better village. 
And isn't it really interesting that the base or the raw material that Paul uses to develop his vision for us is that this, as a church, as a group of people coming together, our purpose is to add value to our community. We are to be people who bring wisdom and blessing to the entire town in which we find ourselves, not just coming together on a Sunday morning to do a religious service. God's design for the ecclesia, for the church, reaches so much further than, beyond, than just ourselves. It, it reaches out, it reaches beyond us, it reaches beyond a Sunday morning. John Rittenbaugh says this, he says that the concept that distinguishes biblical usage from classical Greek usage is the emphasis that it's God's assembly. So ecclesia, therefore, means God's people called together by God to listen to or to act for God. The biblical ecclesia, the church, is a body of people not so much assembling because they chose to come together, but because God called them to himself, not assembling to share their own thoughts and opinions, but to listen to the voice of God. That's the primary purpose of church. It's nice to come and sing songs. It's nice to come and get a wee cup of tea and don't stop the cups of tea. But that's our primary purpose of church. So Paul believed that God wanted the church to be this people who were set apart, this ecclesia who were set apart, but were also then within the world. Now, I'm sure if you've been knocking about here for a while, you've heard this statement, but um, we say quite a lot that the world is peripheral to the church, that the church should be shaping and forming the world around it. But sometimes over the years, it's kind of gone the opposite way in one of two ways. The church has either gone on defense or it has been easily shaped by cultures that are happening in the world at that time. But the ecclesia, the church, is ideally meant to be a community of people who represent an entirely different politic to the world around them, a different way of living. Ultimately, the politics of Jesus, they were meant to be a colony of heaven, living for and under the lordship of Jesus. Interestingly, the word colony, I'm, I'm such a geek about this. I love figuring out what words mean and what that means for it. So I'm so sorry about that, but it's just the teacher in me. But the word colony means a group of people who settle in a new place, but they carry the culture of their homeland with them. So as a church, we are supposed to carry the culture of heaven into the world around us. So in the context of all that we've been exploring about the early church in Acts and how the Holy Spirit is the one who's propelling the church forward at quite a fast pace in Act, Acts at this point, Paul was taking notes. He was beginning to get this divinely inspired revelation about how to find, how to establish, how to shape, and how to stabilize the church. And he noticed that the Holy Spirit was weaving and merging people together and constructing all of these structures to make sure that the church would continue. He got the joy of being the one to identify the steps or the administration is the word that he used, but it just basically means the process or the steps. He got the joy of being the one to identify these steps and share them with the body of Christ. He prays that their minds would be enlightened to understand the fullness of the revelation of Christ and his church. So in Ephesians 3, he writes to them in Ephesus and he says, although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people. This grace was given to me 
to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration, or the steps of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you look at the New Testament way of the church, the architecture that's there, it speaks of the one who designed it. No human mind could have conceived it. The church was not this kind of um, knee-jerk reaction by the people who were there. It was like, oh, we need to do something because all these people are coming together. This was God's idea. It was not an afterthought of man, but it was a forethought of God. The church is not a human accident, but it is a divine plan. And the church and how it functions is our story. We're a part of it. We're meant to be caught up in it. So Paul realizes that it's his role to do two things. The first being preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which was radical, and we'll get into that later on. But his other purpose was to bring to full view, that just means show everybody, the administration, the plans of this mystery of how the church was meant to unfold and what it was meant to look like. So the church was being established on this revelation that was given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and to the prophets. And they are the foundations in Jesus of the Holy Spirit as the one doing the building. And the beauty of this revelation of the church would then demonstrate the wisdom of God to the heavenly powers and the principalities. When we come to church on a Sunday, it's not just because we like to come together, but something happens. Something happens in the mid-heavenly realms. When they saw God's plan for the church being unfolded, they would have like, really just been flabbergasted by this divinely inspired design. God's intention that was that the church would be an unstoppable force that would break through into new territories and build the kingdom of heaven where it hadn't been before. That it would have the most powerful force on earth behind it, which was the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. And Paul writes clearly about how the church will be the place in which the Jews and the Gentiles will be one that the focus of God's love will no longer be exclusively the Jews. It won't be restricted to just the nation of Israel. And for Paul to say this, it was incredibly bold and gutsy because his background was, he calls himself the Jew of Jews. His um, heritage was very strong in Judaism. For him to say this, he would have made himself some enemies, um, especially those who were particularly religious and kept the law um, but didn't get the heart of it. And so as, as he gets this revelation, he writes to the church at Ephesus that the Ecclesia is really Christ's centerpiece for humanity. Specifically in chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians, that Christ, who is the head of the church, has a plan, has this administration that is far beyond anything that anyone could have imagined. So hopefully this morning, I've tried to really ram that home, but you get how groundbreaking, how impactful, how world-changing the church is actually meant to be. So here's another question for us this morning. Why over the years has this been diluted? What has happened that the essence of the New Testament ecclesia has in the church in general been lost a bit? And I think we can only really reflect on these questions when we explore the New Testament purposes of the Ecclesia, these colonies of heaven. And so the first aim of the church is that it should be 
the church should be the context or the place for individual and corporate maturing into the image of Christ. That basically means that you and I have to look more like Jesus. So in Acts 11, in verses 19, right through to 30, we see specifically in Antioch how the church offers the gospel to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. The gospel had reached the Gentiles a little bit before this, but this church was significant when it happened. Um, it says in verse 21 of chapter 11 of Acts that the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem heard that something quite significant was happening in Antioch. So they thought, well, we'll send Barnabas down there and see what it is. He saw it and he, his socks were, were knocked off and he legitimized that actually this was a work of the Holy Spirit. But he realized he was going to need some help. So he went, got Saul, Paul, brought him back. And together they intentionally spent a year there discipling the believers in Antioch. And because of this intentional discipleship process, the believers in Antioch, with the believers in Antioch, there was this great transformation that happened. As individuals and as a whole body then, they began to look more like Jesus. They were the real deal. They were authentic. It was obvious that the transformation was of undisputed supernatural origin. You couldn't argue that God was behind this reconciliation that had happened between these two groups. Paul elaborates this a little bit in um, Ephesians 2.10, and he says, For we are God's workmanship. That means that God is continually transforming us. That means that he is continually changing us. We are God's workmanship. He wants us to look more like Jesus. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So don't forget, this is really important, that this church was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. There would have been a lot of cultural and religious baggage from the both groups to unlearn and deconstruct. And then they had to relearn the culture of heaven, so that they could sort of seamlessly merge together with that one-minded outlook to move forward together. And this spoke so loudly to everyone around them. And interestingly, it was those outside of the church in Antioch who recognized that these people were followers of Jesus, and that's where they were first called Christians. We can see this in Acts 11, verse 26. Barnabas went to Tarsus for Saul. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. That's when they were discipled. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. People saw that there was something transformative and something supernatural happening to these people. And I feel like it's really fundamental to this whole concept of ecclesia. So a community of heaven within the wider community, remember that. But we need to know that the depths of transformation that happened in the lives of the believers in Antioch. So Paul summarizes it well in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. He said, it's entitled, Jew and Gentile Reconciled Through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without God or without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So it was obvious to everybody around the church in Antioch that there was this divine peace that had been made between these two really divided people groups. And I'll elaborate a little bit more on this as we go into the next purpose of the church. But Daryl Dash says this. He says, church is becoming radically reorientated in your relationships, deeply committed to what God is doing in his church. And so because of the individual and the collective transformation to become more like Jesus, this then led to the ecclesia being the context for the local community to see the person of Christ. So it was Paul's prayer that the believers in Ephesus would understand and that they would then live into this impulse of reconciliation between these two groups of enemies. And as they did this, this would make room for Christ to fully dwell in their hearts, which would give them the expectation that God could do powerful things through the church. Now, it's important to know the context in which Paul was writing this. This body of Christians were called out of the Roman and out of the Judean systems to come together to make up this whole new community with its own identity and with its own culture. And when I think of this word body, I know it's often referred to in the Bible, like the physical body with Jesus as the head. But I also think it's helpful for me. I'm not sure semantically how biblical it is, but hopefully I get where I'm going with it. But I think of a body of water. It's one. It's hard unless you have the right physical here I am talking about something I really know nothing about, but unless you can separate water molecules, right? It's one body. It's one whole thing. The Greek word that he uses to describe this word body is the word soma, and it basically means a sound whole. There were to be no gaps in the body. It was like an army in sync moving forward with the purpose of conquest into this new area. So God's heart was that the ecclesia, the church, demonstrate to the world the power of one-mindedness through reconciliation. And we live in a land that knows division very deeply. And that will actually help us understand what is happening here. When Paul wrote this letter, the division between the Jews and Gentiles was excruciatingly deep. The Jews basically believed that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. Right? That's why they were made in the Jews' minds. So it wasn't actually lawful for a Jew to aid a Gentile woman giving birth because that would have brought another heathen into the world. Right? That's how they viewed the Gentiles. They were regarded as sick and perverted pagans who engaged in idol worship and had no regard for God, which was a total offense to Jews. Okay? So that's how the Jews saw the Gentiles. But on the other hand, the Gentiles weren't dying about the Jews either. They had gone into their land, they had taken over, and they had this cultural and political superiority. They just didn't really give a stuff about the Jews. So you can see that they just didn't get on. <laughs> 
And so where there were lots of divisions on so many different levels, which should, humanly speaking, have caused huge problems within this church as it was being established. But they both had to leave behind elements of their social and cultural and religious identity to embrace the same faith that their enemy was now embracing. But the Holy Spirit did this beautiful work of reconciliation among these two groups. They saw each individual through the eyes of the Father. And that is how we are to see people. And they now had this new cultural vision to help spread the message of Jesus. Division was no longer even an issue because they both had access to the one God through the Spirit. And they realized that they had won. (laughs) Because they had this, this was the ultimate goal. This was their fulfillment in life. And Paul writes to the Gentiles in Ephesus in uh, 2.19, he says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God is living by his Spirit. So citizenship in the context of this passage was really striking for this church in Ephesus because at this time, Roman citizenship was something that was really highly valued. Everybody wanted it. It gave you privileges that you wouldn't have otherwise have had, like you were able to vote, you were able to own property, your kids would have had um, Roman citizenship too. And um, anyone reading this, they would have realized the legal and social advantages of Paul using this word citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, the church in Ephesus carried this connotation when they were reading Paul's letter. And for the Gentiles who were not involved in the inheritance of God at any point up until the book of Acts, it was huge for them to become citizens of this heavenly colony with all of the privileges that come with um, being a part of the kingdom of God. And to take it even closer to the heart, he also writes that we're family. We're a part of God's household. We get to enjoy and explore the privileges that you get as a family. Let's not be naive and realize, because I know my house family fall out too, like, but you, know, you get to enjoy the, the love that grows between brothers and sisters. But as a citizen, as an ambassador of heaven, we also have to live with this responsibility of representing our heavenly father in a way that fully reflects who he is too. And we don't just become a Christian to become right with God, like so many of us in our wee country believe. It's get them in, get them saved. As long as we're all okay, it doesn't really matter what happens out there. But that is not the kingdom way. And that is not what Paul tried to convey when he talked about the ecclesia. Belonging to the family of God brings us into relationship with others. And you become a Christian. And the plus side of it, of that is that you become a part of his family, a part of this new humanity that he's creating. This becomes our primary new identity. If you love Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a part of this one new humanity which crosses the barriers that divide and Christ has brought us together and he's made us one. D.A. Carson says that that Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. 
And that means for us, and I think as a church, we're quite good at that. Sometimes people might come into our church that we're not expecting to come in, but we have to love them for Jesus' sake. It isn't just about our own little relationship with God. It's about our relationship with others as well. And I think our journey as a church really reflects that beautifully. And I love that. Hard Snyder says that the church's first task is to truly be the redeemed community. God's plan calls for the church to be a microcosm of that cosmic reconciliation which he is bringing. So this kind of radical, countercultural attitude towards those who should be our enemies. And this unshakable unity that comes is what speaks to the community around us. When something happens that like, shouldn't ordinarily happen, but you see that it's a work of the Spirit, people notice that. People sit up and take notice. It makes an impression. And what begins to happen is it kind of stirs up and loosens all of those like, wrongly held beliefs about church. It makes plain to them the person of Jesus. You see that there's something supernatural behind that. And so as we have all become more transformed to be like Jesus, and as the body and the ecclesia grows and presents him to the community around him, around them, the context for creating a base for penetrating communities and nations is our third point. Church becomes that place when we take the gospel beyond ourselves. This has happened. Sue and Wayne have gone to Spain. They're a colony of heaven out in Spain. They are te- they've taken what they have learned and they've brought it there to show the culture of heaven to people in Spain. I love that. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, In him, Christ in Christ, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become this holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the church in Ephesus would have been really aware of of two um, significant temples at that time. Um, The first temple was the temple in Jerusalem that the Jews, um, it was just, it was the most treasured thing that they had, right? It was the focus of God's presence for more than a thousand years. But Paul really is saying, and this was really radical and kind of countercultural for him to say this. He said, your national identity is, has been your identity for so long. It's all been wrapped up in Solomon's temple, but actually it's really nothing to do with the building anymore. It's the people who make up the church. It's good for us this morning, isn't it? It's nothing really to do with the building. It's the people who make up the church. And that means that God's presence could be on the move and not just limited to that holy of holies place within Solomon's temple. Both communities were now allowed access to God, which wasn't the case at that point. Both communities were to be a part of what God was building. And God inhabits his church when we come together. He just shows up not just shows up because that's played down. He mightily shows up when we come together. But the other temple then that the Gentiles would have been aware of is um, it was a temple in Ephesus um, and it was the temple of Diana of Artemis. If you Google it, it is stunning. Okay, they, they've made images of what they think that it looks like. It's quite a feat for the time that it was built in and it was all, um, all of the great architects of the time all came together and they collaborated on it. And um, it, was, it was renowned for being this beautiful place. So the Gentiles would have had this temple in their mind as well. So both groups were really distinctly aware of the significance of Paul referring to them as a people joining together and rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
he uses the picture of individual members of the church being building blocks. And when, again, here I sound like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to building, but building blocks are millimeters apart. They are tight. They are together. Blocks are needed to hold other blocks in place. If you take one out, the structure becomes very unstable. So essentially what he is saying is that we are all needed to become a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And when that happens, this is what causes the overflow, the spilling out into the communities and the nations beyond ourselves. This was the role of the church. In Acts 13, it says that this church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, all of those people in between, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. The church is meant to be a platform from which we send people. So they repeatedly went and they presented Jesus to this new place and then they came back to Antioch again. And then they went off again, presented Jesus and the gospel to another place and then they came back to Antioch, the church in Antioch, they just got it. They just understood the depth of this manifold wisdom of God's plan for the ecclesia, for the church. And they used this place as a resource church, which is what our heart is for Emmanuel, as a resource church, as a springboard to send the apostles beyond themselves and into the ends of the earth. Now, Hard Snyder says that church most transforms society when it is itself growing and being perfected in the love of Christ. The being is fundamental. The being perfected in Christ is fundamental, but the doing then is the natural result. We can tend to sometimes just come and feel like we need to sign up to this, and we need to do this, but actually the most important thing is to continue that process of sanctification in Jesus. So to begin with this morning, right back, if you think right back, we looked at some statistics and some views that demonstrated how people perceive the church as being out of touch, how it doesn't really impact the world. And by default, as Christians, we like to play into the kind of humble thing a little bit, don't we? We don't really get into the boasting game, but I have got this wee list. I find this and sort of blew me away. Um, it's not an exclusive list, but hopefully you'll get to see how the church has actually impacted the world over the years. In the list of all of the Nobel Prizes that have been won right over the years, all of the Nobel Prizes, <laughs> where do you hear this? This is beautiful. Christians have received 78.3% of all of the total Nobel Prizes for peace. Isn't that like, uh, right, peace. Right, where do you hear this one? They have... Christians have received 72.5% of all of the Nobel Prizes for chemistry, 65.3% for all of the Nobel Prizes for physics. A lot of people believe that faith and science don't add up, but I, I don't think you get a Nobel chemistry or physics prize for something kind of insignificant. So that just flips that whole thing on its head, doesn't it? 62% of all of the Nobel Prizes for medicine have been won by Christians, 54% in economics, 49.5% of Nobel Prizes in literature. That is bringing the kingdom of heaven into the world. Don't tell me that the church isn't relevant. And over the years, the ecclesia, these colonies of heaven, have established on earth, they have been responsible 
for in the words of Milton Jones, the very sarky Christian comedian, he says this, right? He says, the church over the years has responsible for the beginnings of science, systems of government, philosophy, art, school, hospitals, the emancipation of women, the abolition of slavery, social welfare, helping form the basis of the moral code that most people live by, and by introducing popular notions of justice, mercy, decency, and compassion. Let's not buy into the lie, because that's all that it is, that the church is outdated and irrelevant, because it is just not true. Alan Hurst says this. He says, oh, Alan Hurst, there he is. He says, this is the church as Jesus intended it to be, a gospel-empowered, unfettered people movement, perfectly designed for nothing less than the transformation of the world and the destruction of evil. This is why there was profound beauty for us in covenanting together in the first Sunday in January. This is why it was a beautiful thing when we laid our bricks. We are all needed to build a church so that we can, first point, look more like Jesus. So that we can show the reality of who he is to the communities in which we find ourselves. And so that we can be a base from which we can bring his light to the darkness all around. And so to draw this to a close this morning, um, as I was going over these notes yesterday and I was praying for you guys, I felt that there might be some people here this morning who kind of feel like <clears throat> they know that they're meant to be a part of the body. They're meant to be a building block, but they've never quite found their fit. But I believe this morning that God is whispering to some individuals here. He's whispering into their hearts and he's saying that you are a building block and you are needed to build this holy temple. And so if there's someone here this morning or a few people here this morning, we would love you to avail of the prayer ministry. There's going to be people at the front. It's not, it's not that anybody's going to be looking at you or anything like that. The heart of the prayer ministry team is to see breakthrough come in your life. And so if you've ever felt like the enemy has tried to say, yeah, well, actually, you have nothing to contribute. You don't really have a place there. What can you bring? I'm telling you this morning that is a lie of the enemy because he doesn't want you to find your place here. So if you're one of those people who's ever felt like on the edge or in the periphery, we would love to pray with you this morning. And the other thing that I felt God um, put on my heart yesterday was, I feel like there could be some people here, here this morning and you feel like you're in the starting blocks and you feel like you're just, you're ready, but you feel like over the years you've been sort of just like tied or held back a wee bit. But God wants you this morning to be an unfettered people movement. And if that's you, and again, you feel like you're just, you're dying to go, you're on the edge, you're ready to move, would you come and let us pray for you this morning? We would love to do that. So let's pray together first. God, what a privilege it is to get to be a part of your divine plan as to how you show the world who you are, God. We are thankful for this body. We are thankful for these people. We are thankful for the building blocks that are in this room, God. This church shows who you are to the community around us, God. And so this morning, we just pray a release, Father. We just pray 
for a holy boldness, Father. We pray for a, a supernatural confidence, Father, for people to break through, to come forward, to receive prayer, Father, and to see freedom come in a whole new way, Father. And so this morning as we... Um, we digest everything that you've wanted to say, God. I just pray that, that you would open our eyes, that you would stir up our hearts over the next week, Father, that we would want to carry everything that you want to reveal to us about being a part of the church, that it's not really very much to do with just a Sunday morning, God, but that it's about bringing you into the places around us, that it's shaping the world around us for the purposes of heaven, God. So thank you that you've been here, Thank you for the people who are here, Father. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work and continue to minister this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So why doesn't the worship band come up?